0: Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. We are back after a one-week break and ready to go again. Thank you for hanging with us. Today, I am joined by Christine Shar. Christine is an architect with over 22 years of experience working across many different types of projects. She is owner-principal of Shar Architecture and Design, and founder and co-chair of the Women in Design organization that is part of the Seattle chapter of the American Institute of Architects, the AIA. Recently, she has been working on designing, managing, and delivering several light rail projects in the Seattle area. More specifically, she has worked on light rail stations for the expanding Sound Transit Network. She has worked on the Shoreline, Roosevelt, and Capitol Hill stations, to name a few. As someone who loved thinking about and designing fictional transportation maps in my younger years, and is still giddy when experiencing public transportation networks during my travels, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Christine, thank you for opting to spend some of your time to chat about architecture, transportation design, and Seattle with me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So, was architecture and design always in your bloodstream? If you think back on the the arc of your life, was it quite clear that this is what you wanted to do, or was there some exploration with other potential crafts? How did you get to to the here and now?
1: Well, I, like many architects, will tell you that I was drawing floor plans as a kid, like very, very young, before I even knew what a floor plan was. My dad worked for Hewlett Packard, and he would bring home these reams of paper, you know, like the old computer printout paper with the perforated edges and they were all very linear like long and you know mm-hmm. connected at the perforations so all of my designs were very long and linear but yeah i just loved drawing floor plans as a kid and you know then as you grow older people say to you oh you probably want to be an architect so i figured that they were right after a while and what
0: were the floor plans of were they just random homes or were they fictional places what what was the
1: well they were houses but sometimes i would draw the whole neighborhood like I would draw the street that ran up to the house or the the neighborhood and the neighboring houses and I would get into some of the neighborhoods too.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It reminds me of time when I used to play Dungeons and Dragons with a group of four or five friends and we always had our graph paper and we were on, not only mapping what we knew, but sometimes we would create our own fictional Uh, realms and dungeons and what have Mm -hmm. you. I took it particularly seriously, the the level of
2: detail. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think if I were a kid today, I probably would be into Minecraft. Is that the one where people build the... Mm -hmm. With the the blocks. Yeah, the blocks. and and,
0: computer screen.
1: I have a feeling I would have been really into that.
0: Yeah. And was it architecture through and through, from high school into college into graduate school and, and so on?
1: Pretty much, yeah. By the time I was in high school, I even I think when I was in junior high, I took like an architectural intro class at the local art center and we built models of houses. And I think I used one of those models as a science fair project. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty nerded out on architecture already by junior high. But then in high school, I kind of tried to focus on what I would take to get into, you know, good prerequisites for college. Mm -hmm. And I was wrong about everything, but (laughs) I would have taken more art actually. Mm. But I took a lot of math and and then I went to Kansas State because they have a very good architecture program, and I was from Colorado originally, and they do not have—architecture really as an undergrad. Like, if you get started, you'd have to take some other degree and then go to grad school. Mm. So I uh, I decided—well, actually, everybody you talked to in the front range was just like, go to Kansas State. It's great. So mm.
0: You might be one of the few exceptions because a lot of people that have come to this podcast and— However, they end up being whatever they do that they, they bounce around like a pinball until they find what, what they wanted to do. But it sounds like for you, it was a, a pretty straight shot. But within the field of architecture and design, are there specific angles or passions that really motivate you and drive you as you take on your projects? Are there specific manifestos, if you will, or a certain style that, that you gravitate toward?
1: For sure, I, I gravitate towards simpler, more straightforward work. I'm a big fan of mid-century modern, as everybody is, but um, I think just really clean spaces, clean lines, buildings that don't have too much going on, especially as you get into the public realm, because, you know, it's especially in transportation in particular, you really don't want things to be confusing to people. So very clean and straightforward is always mm-hmm. good. And I think it's fun to play around with materiality and within the space, but keep the architecture nice and clean.
0: And when you say play with materiality, you mean the the textures and the properties of the the stuff in Mm -hmm,
1: which things mm -hmm. are made? Yeah, some of the finishes and colors Mm -hmm. and things like that. So So
0: just to play devil's advocate, so often people say, I like it simple, I like it clean, especially in design communities. And then the other side of the spectrum is ornate and Baroque and, Mm -hmm. you know, curves and furnishes and flourishes I should say in detail Mm -hmm. excess detail is there a a middle path where too much clean spare minimal Mm -hmm. lines is actually uninspiring to folks who live in that space
1: yeah one of my favorite architects is um, Lou Sullivan who a lot of people don't know him he was kind of the guy who taught Frank Lloyd Wright and you wouldn't necessarily think of his work as modern or clean because he did use a lot of ornamentation but his ornamentation was so specific to the space so he didn't do it just to be ornate he, i mean he loved nature and he loved the, orna- the ornamentation he did was very inspired by nature but like he did a whole series of banks in the midwest and they're just these simple boxes but then they will have this awesome ornate like window or door or framework that just sort of says bank mm-hmm. you know and it's not it's not extra mm-hmm. it's beautiful but it's yeah. it's very purposeful yeah
0: because there's that there's always that tension if it's too clean when is it too uh, clinical if you will and mm-hmm. when do you have enough ornate detail to just cause a, an aesthetic reaction and right, folks right. so tell us about some of your recent projects perhaps choose one or two that you're most proud of and tell us what made them special for you
1: so, well, recently I have been working, as you mentioned, on light rail stations, and I have been working on the the station at 185th Street Northeast in Shoreline. And I think it's special for me because it's really the first station where I'm really leading the design, the whole design team. Mm-hmm. And it's been really fun and it's, it's great because you do feel there's some scary, you know putting yourself out there. But the reward is you look at what we're doing as a team and it's it's looking really, really good. I'm, I'm very proud of what we're doing up there. So,
2: mm-hmm. And what
0: specifically are some of the details that, that cause that pride, well,
1: if you can share them? yet. yeah, no, we can. I think it's pretty well, it's been seen by the public at, at a 30% level. We are, because it's in Shoreline, and it's in the part of Shoreline that has a lot of small, low-slung, like mid-century Bungalow-type houses. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff there was built in the 60s and 70s. We are being inspired by that. So we're actually incorporating, like, a really dark brick into the building, which you don't see a lot on Sound Transit projects. Mm -hmm. But it's a very modern expression, but we're also really trying to sort of bring that neighborhood feeling into this little kind of jewel box-type station. Mm -hmm.
0: And you're right. I, I was looking over your portfolio in your SHAR architecture and design site, which is S-C H A-R-R-E-R-A-D dot com. And it's clear that you really have been focusing lately on, on transit stations. But what is the attraction to public transportation infrastructure projects such as these specifically? It's it's not just another public building. Is there there's something about the fact that it moves people and it's such an integral part of their day-to-day that that adds a special attraction to these
2: projects?
1: I think that is a part of it. I think my path to transit was, it wasn't one I necessarily sought out or chose. It just happened to be the firm I started working at, just was really getting a lot of those jobs. And then I found that I really enjoyed those projects because, I mean, they're just essential to sustainability in our region. So it was really kind of like being able to do do good work, but they can be really cool, you Mm -hmm. know. They're these these little spaces that people sort of just travel through, and they are distinct for each neighborhood, but they're also part of a system. So mm-hmm. then they kind of fit along a whole pattern of, of architecture that you have through the city. Yeah, I just sort of was drawn to them and started doing a lot of them, and now I know the client very well, So, and I'm, I very much believe in their values and what they're trying to do, so... Oh.
0: When I think about my relationship to public transportation stations, there's there's a couple of factors that come to mind. One, it's a portal of sorts because mm-hmm. it's one of the buildings that if you take the subway or if you take rail regularly to and from work or, or what have you, it is a daily visual and spatial presence in mm-hmm. your life. It's almost like a, a wing of your home. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's a a special wing of your home where there's a transitional moment occurring where you're moving from a place of comfort to a place of work Mm -hmm. or unwinding and moving away from work and transitioning into your place of comfort. So it's interesting to think not only about the the pragmatic and logistical details of these stations, but what kind of aesthetic and emotional tones are associated Mm -hmm. with them. Is that stuff you guys think about when thinking about the design of stations, not just from a purely pragmatic point of view, but also aesthetic and emotional?
1: Yeah. I mean, we we definitely acknowledge or we understand that they're very transient spaces. People don't spend a lot of time in them. But then, as you were saying, you might be in that space every day, twice a day. So you want it to be a comfort, comfortable space. Um, you know, people who use the station on a regular basis are going to know exactly what elevator take, exactly what escalator they would like to take, where to stand to get in the right door, you know, the train they want to get on. But then there's always those people who will take that station or go to that stop once. And so they have to have, it has to be clear, has to be comfortable, has to be, you know, usable. So there's that that, that balance you want to strike Mm -hmm. and you want to keep it interesting and aesthetically pleasing and, you know, not too clinical for the people who live there, but also you really got to have it do its job.
0: And I noticed when I was reading through your site that uh, a lot of the, it seems like the architecture and design team might be focused on one specific subset of the station. For instance, I think it was in Tukwila, you were focusing on the escalators. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about escalators and recently Sound Transit, well, recently, probably about a year ago, opened new stations in Capitol Hill, which you worked on, and in the University of Washington. And what struck me about those two stations was the because of the depth of the tunnel, mm-hmm. you need to, you need to take escalators, maybe two or three or sometimes even four mm-hmm. wings of escalators to get down there. Mm-hmm. Go
1: ahead. Oh, well, they're in the big and long, you yeah. know. Yeah. So the,
0: talk about a transitional point. It's almost like you just sit there and that's your, you know, one minute, two minute transition. Your mind is shifting as you go down the escalator. Mm-hmm. And there's something I think about the design of those escalators and those two stations specifically that and maybe you have Mm -hmm. to confirm this is aware Mm -hmm. of that because there's art, there's like hanging mobiles, there's a a certain bluish color scheme in the University of Washington escalators, and then Capitol Hill says like almost like a pop art feel to Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the addition of art installations and what that does to to humans as they move through these these tunnels?
1: I think that's a huge part of the success of these stations, and I think Sound Transit as an agency is very much understands that. We try not to say oh we'll fix it with art, <laughs> you know, that'll be our ornamentation, but mm-hmm. we've I've been very lucky to work with great artists on these stations. And there's definitely an integrated process. I'm very proud of Capitol Hill for that reason because I think the art is just fantastic. And we did, I mean that's one of the things I love about it and every I I take that station, it's my home station. Mm-hmm. So every time I go down those escalators, In my brain, I'm remembering the video that we did where we tested how you would Mm -hmm. come down into that space and how you would glimpse the different views of the planes as you were kind of coming down the layers of, you know, there's those big, huge structural pieces that break the space into sort of like layers. Mm -hmm. And his artwork really flows above and below. So that was very purposeful, definitely on his part and on ours as well. So.
0: So it's interesting you actually talking about those videos there. Mm-hmm. Are they animated videos before the escalators are actually built and maybe even as they're being built you you take a first person point of view perspective to see how somebody might perceive mm-hmm. the structure as they go through this.
1: Well back in those days it was sketchup. Mm-hmm. Now you can do actual like VR Walkthroughs mm-hmm. with the new models we do, but this that was just a video we did out of SketchUp where we had your little eye level walk through the station and go down the escalators and come back up and stop and look around. So it was a little more primitive, but you know we could still use that tool at that time.
0: And this is foreshadowing a question I'm going to ask you later that's going to involve Jane Jacobs, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I'll just let let that hang for a little <laughs> while. But when you think about the design of these stations, how do you fold in information about? Any current or future population trends or you mentioned the, the features of the neighborhood you work in? How do, what's the process of making sure that these stations are not just top-down structures mm-hmm. imposed from above from some abstract principle, but actually weave in the people that live in those neighborhoods?
1: In the neighborhoods. Well, you know, there's as far as just basic data, Sound Transit has a lot of data about projected ridership. That right or wrong, you know, they definitely didn't get Ballard right. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but nobody foresaw Ballard. But um You mean the growth of that yeah, area? Yeah. I just don't think anybody really thought that was gonna happen the way it did. But um with the with the rail stations, they have pretty good data on what they think the ride the ridership will be, you know, all the way out to 2030, 2035. So, you know, there's there's those numbers which kind of shape how big the station's gonna be and how big the platform will be and if you're outside, how much overhead coverage you need, things like that. But, you know, we tend to do a lot of planning. People kind of, there's a lot of critique of Sound Transit about how slow the projects go and why does it take so so long to build a station or a line. And part of it is because we spend a lot of time planning, looking at alignments, looking at where is the best place to both get right of way for the alignment but also where's the best neighborhood based on growth and you know urban planning to put a station. So so there's a lot of thought that goes into that and then just as an architect I think you we spend time in the neighborhoods. It was lucky for me I lived on Capitol Hill so I could, you know, really get into the the feel of what we wanted that station to be like based on what was going on with Broadway at the time. So mm-hmm.
0: so there's general if you will, census information about where the growth will cluster and, and would benefit from public transportation. But as you said, with Shoreline, it was a bungalows, mid-century modern, and you wanted to reflect some of the character of those neighborhoods. When you work on other projects, is it also thinking about not just the aesthetic properties of the neighborhoods that the structure will be in, but are there, I don't know, design review boards? To what level is the feedback given mm-hmm. by people um Fold it in, and in what ways? Or, or are is there not a lot? Only a few squeaky wheels, but not really a lot of people talking about it.
1: It depends on the city and the jurisdiction. In Seattle, we have, as you know, a very process-oriented community, both in our design review boards that we have in neighborhoods, and also we have in Seattle the the design commission. They they formulated when light rail started a special design commission basically it's called the light rail review panel and it's made up of members of the planning commission the arts commission and the Di- design commission so we call that the lerp mm. we're, we're all about acronyms mm-hmm. so and that's a very very rigorous process like you have to go through these stages where you pass their review and their their input will be make or break a project like they can send you back to the drawing board and the mayor listens to them and the council listens to them. So it's important that you really, we have to listen to them. And then within a neighborhood, we always have open houses and reviews there. And that those can be, I mean, I've been in, in open houses actually on Capitol Hill. We had people, it was about the art mm. shockingly mm-hmm. getting up and yelling, you know, at the artist, poor guy. He he was he went through it, he was a great guy, so yeah, there's a lot of feedback. and then, like at shoreline, we've had not very much feedback, but then all of a sudden people are saying, "Why why are you using red?" Hmm. you know, or you know, people will start to squeak about color,, yeah. which is interesting because you know color is so subjective mm-hmm.
0: and there's something about the geography of Seattle for those who don't live here, open up a map, basically, there's water to the left, to the center to the right. There's water below, there are you know mountains, there are you know earthquake considerations to take into mm-hmm. account. So the process might take a long time, but there's also the, the geography and just the, the logistical details of, of choosing the right structure, the right materials to mm-hmm. be safe. And then as you move into North Seattle, it's almost like it splits into a Y because you have uh, Lake Union splitting almost two sides of Seattle on. The northwest side, you have Fremont and Ballard and Crown Hill and so on. And then on the northeast side, you have University and you have Northgate and so on. So it's almost like you have to make a choice with limited Mm -hmm. um, resources. Which fork should I take? Which path should I take? Where is the population going to receive the most benefit? And to Mm -hmm. your point... People didn't expect Ballard to grow that much. And mm-hmm. I think the chips went on the I-5 corridor, for if sure. you will, being yeah. the, the main line of transportation. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I used to joke when I I actually got into transit because I was hired to do a couple of stations for the monorail for my old firm. <laughs> remember the monorail? And I remember joking, who gets stuck in traffic going to West Seattle? Mm-hmm. Who gets stuck in traffic going to Ballard? It was a joke to me well now we we know differently but i don't think a lot of people envision that but i think still even though we have more local traffic i think the biggest impact impact we will make immediately is regional so that is getting to that's getting up to linwood getting mm-hmm. up to everett actually is first and then they are refocusing with st3 their efforts into sort of that why mm-hmm. in the city and Looking at another tunnel and
0: so the northern edges, the southern edges mm-hmm. and then the east mm-hmm. getting into the east side right. over the floating bridge
1: right and so on, which I did work on that. That's uh-huh. first time ever. so yeah. we'll see how that goes cross your fingers.
0: yeah, I was looking <laughs> at a because it is a floating bridge and because it sways to different degrees of intensity, the tracks can't be too rigid. So I was looking at a video online about how they need to build a special system to allow the tracks Mm -hmm. to move slightly in order. because, as we know, anything that's too rigid, especially in earthquakes, breaks easily. Mm -hmm. So it was really fascinating to take a look at at that level of detail that needed to happen
1: there. Yeah, I sat in numerous meetings on that project where all we talked about was track attachment. Mm -hmm. And I would remember thinking, when are you going to get to the station? (laughs) But, I mean... Lots of talk, frogs. I think the little attachment guys are called frogs. Oh, they are. Lots of talk about what kind of frogs you're going to have, and you know, direct fixation versus. I mean, I it's all this lingo that these engineers use, but it it's that was the biggest challenge on that project. Mm-hmm. Really, is getting across that, especially the two bridge sections that go you know, between Mercer Island and Bellevue and then Bellevue, obviously. On
0: I-90. Mm-hmm. So let's take a step back and get a little philosophical. What do you consider to be the essential factors that are necessary to make great built environments, whether we're talking about buildings, public spaces, streets, and so on? I know it's a little abstract, but as you're thinking about great great spaces, what are some of those things that come to mind that must be there?
1: hmm Well, you mentioned Jane Jacobs and And related to her is another author that wrote some very essential reading on the subject in the 60s, William White. And a lot of it is the intangibles. It's not necessarily, well, great design obviously is going to help, but Mm -hmm. it's creating places that people will want to use. It can be abstract, Mm -hmm. but allowing for a variety of uses, keeping things safe. I mean, you can design I was thinking about this. You know, you can design a beautiful space. Freeway Park, when it first opened, won awards, nationally, urban awards, landscape awards. And six months later, you couldn't go there without fear of being mugged because it didn't have anything to activate it. There was no after hours activity. There was no reason for people to be there, you know, other than to go through it, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily safe. So... You know, you really, a lot of it has to do with the people.
0: Mm-hmm. And in a previous episode, actually, I had a, a conversation with Stacey Seagal, who's the executive director of the Seattle Architecture Foundation, and we really spent some time trying to make sense of certain words and concepts mm-hmm. that architects and urban planners love to use, and you just used one, by the way. <laughs> so, w- specifically, what does placemaking mean, and can we unpack what architects and urban planners mean by, what you said, activating mm-hmm. a space? So, there's the making it a space that everybody wants to use, but there's almost a shorthand there. A lot of people say, well, what is what is that? What are mm-hmm. those properties? What are those features that activate a space?
1: It can be as simple as how you enter and leave it. You know, if you just enter and leave from one edge, there's going to be a whole dead space in the middle that unless there's a reason for people to walk across the space to the other side, they might not. Mm-hmm. So then that's where, you know, that's where your shady characters will go to hang out. Mm-hmm. But activation can be as simple as something like that, how you design the way people flow through it. Mm-hmm. But it's also programming, meaning put a coffee cart in or put a newsstand in. That, that would be the Jane Jacobs or the William White approach. And make ver- a variety of spaces in the place that people can use. So if you have a bench where somebody can have a quiet moment or you can have, you know, like a play structure. If you think of a park where you can have kids go run around and climb on stuff. It's things like that, that you got to give people a reason to want to go to the space Mm -hmm. and use it in the way that you hope they will use it.
0: Yeah, but then it it gets kind of dicey and people have heard me uh, shaking my fist at this. I live in South Lake Union Mm -hmm. and I've lived there since 2009 and I've seen the changes that have occurred. And South Lake Union has just had a a plethora of corporate office buildings plopped throughout. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there are some great corner spaces where the plazas open and maybe there's some public art, maybe there's a bar or a restaurant, Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe there's some concrete plazas sort of in the middle of the block that have steel tables and steel chairs. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of the day, when you have the small population of Amazon in South Lake Union working, sure, the furniture and, and these items will be used, but once that population leaves the area it suddenly becomes a concrete Western tumbleweed strewn (laughs) sector of the city. So it's, I mean, you could say, well, the developers did the right thing. They made a plaza, they made it welcoming, they put Mm -hmm. objects there for people who sit in. But after a certain period of time, after the work cycle, there is nothing left for those who live there. Mm -hmm. Granted, at the time I moved in there, I was a so-called pioneer, and now Mm -hmm. there are more people coming in. But it, it, it's really tough. You could design, now here's the space where all the lemmings must congregate, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean they will, so it's really difficult to mm-hmm. try to find what, what that is.
1: Right. Well, that goes back to the idea of, of there's, there's this idea of equity, too, so that not just the Amazon workers feel like they're comfortable in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to let the... The person who's just walking down the street needs to sit down and take a break, feel like they're not maybe trespassing on a, somebody's corporate place, you know? So mm-hmm. it has to really look like it's a public space and not just, you know, though that's their lunch area. But then there's the other piece where the activation comes from when the activity occurs and how you program or develop the buildings and the spaces around it to have, make sure that there are people there at all hours. Mm-hmm. It was probably before your time, but downtown Seattle used to be. After 5, 6 o'clock, tumbleweeds mm-hmm. rolling through there. And now, for better or for worse, in some cases, there are always people in downtown Seattle. And that was all about revitalizing the retail core, you know, making it attractive for restaurants to come in. That goes back to, like, Norm Rice, you know, 90s policies. Mayor, mayor at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So some of it's just policy you know, and incentives. Mm -hmm. It's
0: interesting that the concept of equity helps me because as I walk through South Lake Union, usually the the typical strategy for these Amazon buildings is to have maybe one tenant at the corner in an open plaza, whether it's a bar or a restaurant and Mm -hmm. so on. But then the buildings usually take a whole block area and the middle of the block usually is split so that you can walk in between buildings and Mm -hmm. enter the buildings. And then they make sort of public amenities in that canyon in between buildings. Mm-hmm. But if I think of myself as a resident in the area walking there on a Saturday at 3 p.m.,
2: mm-hmm.
0: there's very little reason for me to want to spend time picnicking in the middle of a glass <laughs> canyon.
1: Right, <laughs> right.
0: Canyon, unless i look like a, the cover of a Pink Floyd record mm-hmm. from the mid-70s or something. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's, it's, in, it's theoretically it makes sense, but how to really pull it through mm-hmm. is, I think, challenging. What recent trends are you seeing in the architecture and design space, whether positive or negative, actually, when it comes to approaches to our built environments? Is it a fair question? Are there identifiable movements that can be pinpointed or is architecture at a swirl of different influences and views at the time?
1: I think we're definitely in a a new modern era as far as just aesthetically. People are really the tools we have, the construction techniques we have, and the materials we have are allowing people to do amazing things. Like if you look at the Amazon uh, spheres and things like that, I mean, we've, we can do a lot of really interesting formal things, but I think the main movement that I'm seeing is one that is more, it's more about doing the right thing for the environment and you know, we have one of the strictest energy codes in Washington State, and it's a pain to deal with. I mean, we curse it all the time, but it's still not strict enough considering where we need to be, you know, with carbon emissions and with the effect we're having on the environment. So I I see a lot of technology. There's this whole smart building um, movement, and I think the AIA is actually, that's their forum that they're having right now is about future-ready buildings. And a lot of that is about Buildings that can gather data on how they're, you know, using energy, the way we design them and the tools we have to actually predict how buildings will perform. It's very data driven, which for me, you know, ugh, do I really want to sit down and look at a bunch of numbers? Mm-hmm. But it can be translated into space that is really cool. So
0: so what are particular Tangible examples of uh, either smart buildings or, or the environmental movement. I mean, when I moved to Seattle, one of the first things that struck me as I was walking, I think it was Belltown, I was walking next to an apartment complex and there was a almost looked like a Rube Goldberg machine going from the roof of the apartment down into the courtyard. And it was basically collecting rainwater, Mm -hmm. bringing it down into this sort of art installation slash fountain and then reusing the water somehow. Mm -hmm. So that was one example that struck me. I I came from Philadelphia where you wouldn't see a lot of that happening. Mm -hmm. That immediately Mm -hmm. struck me 10 years ago. But what are some other examples of this kind of uh, sustainability in, in architecture and design?
1: Well, a lot of it is stuff that you wouldn't necessarily be able to see because it's how the building envelope is is made. You know how you run weatherproofing, how the mm-hmm. windows are sealed or not sealed, um, the insulation values you have, you know the type of equipment you're using to heat and cool the space. So a lot of it is stuff you would not necessarily see. The Bullet Center up on Capitol Hill is a really good building to visit. I think you can take a tour. It's kind of expensive, but they—I think—they offer tours almost at all, all times. And that is, it's what they call a net-zero building, and it's a building that basically, through its design and construction, and now life, it does not consume more energy than it puts out. Mm. So it's net zero. So, and what they did with that building is they tried to make some of it apparently. You know, there's a lot of solar panels on the outside. There's shades that go up and down to regulate the space with, you know, when the sun's out, the shades come down. So you can kind of see the building reacting to its environment. So that's a good one to look at. But a lot of it you can't necessarily see Mm -hmm. because it is, it's literally how do you tape this joint between the window and the sheathing next to it.
0: Mm -hmm. Under the skin of um, Mm a building, so to speak. It reminds me, this conversation of a a recent podcast, 99% Invisible, maybe a lot of people are familiar with, they had a recent one on, on energy consumption, and they mentioned that unbeknownst to most of us, the price of energy fluctuates in an average day. Like It could be a factor of 300% one way or another. Mm-hmm. We all get the same kind of kilowatt-hour price, but it's averaged out. And somebody was proposing, as you go to your thermostat or your television or your washing machine, to put a little meter that mm-hmm. tells you, at this time of day, this is the price. And to actually charge for electricity based on the actual price, depending on the, the time of day. And I wonder how much behavior that might change. Mm-hmm. I was thinking smart buildings, let's make smart people as well <laughs> to take a look. Oh, it's going to be three times as much to run a dishwasher now. I'll time it for later.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, no, letting people know how their behavior is affecting things is another thing. And I think some of these smart buildings, they do have that level of interaction. They'll have like little sensors on your desk that you know will sense the air temperature and and you'll notice i mean i sit i sit a couple days a week down at lmn because i'm partnered with them on the convention center Mm -hmm. and they've installed a lot of smart technology in that old 1960s building but it's kind of when i first started working there was a little shocking because you would be sitting there in the middle of the day and all of a sudden the shades would start going up or down and the lights would go up and you know adjusting for the light outside and the temperature inside and it was very interesting.
0: That reminds me now that you mentioned the convention center. I was at a downtown Seattle Association State of the Year or something like that annual event. And they were talking about the new convention center extension that they're building on, I forget, I think it's around Pine or Pike, somewhere in it's, between there. Yeah,
1: not between all, well, it's it's kind of taking over all of um, Underground anyway. It's between Howell and Pine. Mm hmm. Helen Pike, sorry, and 9th and Boren mm-hmm. was the main site there.
0: And something they mentioned, there's a old, what looks to be 1940s buildings, and there's a classic sign for Hotel Camlin or something like that, mm-hmm. a large neon sign. And whoever was doing that project was very conscious that when you walk into that new convention center area, they wanted to make sure that the visibility of that neon sign and that area of the mm-hmm. city was front and center. So another way of activating a space and making it comfortable mm-hmm. for people is to be aware of what's around you and to maybe make sacrifices if you want to put it that way to your design in order to allow the environment around what you're building to make its presence within mm-hmm. what you're building so mm-hmm. you actually have a symbiotic relationship with what's around the building right bringing details of that
1: in that's and that's very important to the project actually there's a lot of thought going into how the the historic buildings around there are being integrated into the ideas of the project I know that there have been studies about how we might do some more historic lighting on those buildings as a part of the conventions that are project. So they're looking at all kinds of, of options of sort of, you're right, reflecting back those great buildings that are right there.
0: And, you know, we're we're talking about, some people might listen to this and say, holy crap, I never thought about those little nooks and crannies of, of design. Do you think that skills associated with what we'll just call design or architectural literacy are eroding or... Or, well, perhaps we should first tackle what is meant by that kind of literacy. Is there such a concept? And if so, what does it mean to you? It's, it's design or architecture, literacy or awareness of the space around you.
1: I know that it's different in graphic design and, and sort of the web world than it is in architecture. In architecture, when we we talk about literacy or being able to read a building or a space, it's more being able to understand, you know, what the, what the design intent is. And often you would do that when you were looking at drawings or something. Back in the day, you would say you read drawings. Well, we still read drawings. But And how how something reads would be very important in design studio. But I think it's in in just regular, everyday walking down the street, it's how do you perceive the building and what its function is and what you're supposed to do there. Mm -hmm. Sort of going back to that Lou Sullivan idea, the big ornate thing over the door, for whatever reason, just feels like it's a bank. So
0: you- and here's my old fogey moment, but this is a, a theory I've been kicking around and I don't know, it'll need empirical backing. But the more we are enamored with our digital devices, with our hand computers, as I like to call them, as we walk through space, as we walk from home to work or go through transportation. When I was a kid, you know, my face would be on the glass looking at all the details, wondering why that's in that station and why that other station doesn't have this. And I was looking all around me and just in the sense of why choices were being made but now more than often than not then we have people looking at their devices not really looking at the space around them and having to think about it they're looking at a news feed maybe there's you know Mm -hmm. tons of other important stuff to look at on your device but the whole notion of challenging thinking about spatial relationships and your presence in it i think is being eroded to some extent Mm -hmm. um and some people say, "Oh, don't be a you know luddite." People <laughs> were reading newspapers and trains in the nineteen forties mm-hmm. and not paying attention. It's just another type of, you know, digital newspaper.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And if people are this way, that's how humans are. But I do think that something is being eroded by a tremendous um, digital sucking of our of our attention.
1: Yeah, there's um. Well, but people didn't read newspapers and, like, fall off curbs because they were, like, reading them as they were walking. And mm-hmm. I did that yesterday, so I can't make fun of other people. But, well, you know, there's this author, we, we a, book, a book club friend, some friends of mine, we read this author, Sherry Turkle, I think her name is. She has a book called Alone Together. Mm-hmm. And for the last 30 to 40 years, all she's been doing is studying technology and its effect on how we relate to one another. And at first she was starting in the 70s, like, talking about, like, you know, robots and the future of robotics and things like that. But now her work is really focused on there's a lot to do with cell phones and personal devices and things like that. And it literally is. You sit in a room and you are alone together. Mm -hmm. You're not even with the other person you're, you know, with. So then you see that on a public scale where people are just all sitting in one space and they're all there together. But nobody's aware of the other people. Or what's going on around them.
0: So we've been talking a lot about, you know, the degree of people's awareness of architecture and design. So if people are interested, what are some key movements in architecture and urban planning that people really should know about? And and what are their main tenets? For instance, uh, today's Sunday and Thursday night, I just saw that documentary on Jane Jacobs. Its title is Citizen Jane, Battle for the City. And Jane Jacobs was an architecture journalist and activist in the latter half of the 20th century, mostly, who inspired what's called a new urbanist movement. And though actually it might take a few episodes to really suss out her views, Mm -hmm. let's just say that she champions a a bottoms-up approach to architecture and design that takes how people's actual behavior is as the guiding principle in architecture rather than a top-down, bringing larger abstract concepts into people's lives. What are some of the primary movements and debates that, that really people should key in and if they want to research and, and start getting a, a base?
1: Well, I think Jane Jacobs is a great place to start. She is sort of the godmother of that whole idea. She lived in Greenwich Village, and that was her laboratory, and it was she loved it. She loved everything about it. She loved the people sitting on the stoops and how... Um, how they, you know, yelled across the street at each at each other and kids would play in the street and stuff like that. Whereas I think the movie is a bit about her sort of feud with Robert Moses, who was the opposite. He wanted to blow all that away because he thought it was messy. It's a sort of a Howard Rourke thing too, you know. He, he would have been the opposite of Jane Jacobs. So I think that just that movement has been going and it they call it New Urbanism now, but back when we were doing the the comprehensive plan for seattle that's when we we termed our urban villages and urban oh i I should know what they all are there's urban villages urban neighborhoods
0: the corridors or something like that
1: yeah there's corridors the original comprehensive plan was actually really an interesting read because it's basically trying to celebrate what seattle was starting to do already we already had these little neighborhoods like fremont and wallingford and they all had their little center And they were a little more dense or starting to get a little more dense. And then you would go out into the neighborhood. But the idea was that you could always walk to your little center and get that cup of coffee or hopefully get a grocery store visit in or something like that. So, And that's all just based on the idea that people want to be around other people and they want to be able to walk places, get people out of their cars. So it's got a lot of, I think, everything good about it, personally. It can't be forced. I think that's where you start to see South Lake Union, which might maybe is a little bit to Robert Moses, mm-hmm. you know. South Lake Union was invented. It wasn't a little core. It had some. I think the Cascade neighborhood had a few things going on, but the whole thing is basically built from scratch. You, yeah, it's an interesting thought as far as can you create it. And that's that's where Jane Jacobs would say no. It has to start happening and you have to allow it to happen. Mm.
0: But I wonder, you know, devil's advocate on my own view, maybe South Lake Union in 20 or 30 years might form. Yeah. The moss might grow, so to speak, and it become mm-hmm. much more organic and interesting. And and it's, it's a chicken and egg question. Do you build to supplement the human patterns that are already in place mm-hmm. and enhance them? Or if, there's a sector that doesn't have them yet set the infrastructure with the hope that right. you've done it right. right. Almost like creating a sea monkey farm and waiting right. for the sea monkeys yeah. to grow in.
1: <laughs> and that is, that is sort of the new urbanist idea with some of the planned communities that have happened. Celebration Florida, I think is the one that people always talk about, but yeah, that's what people are trying to do. And if done right, I think you can, you can make it work.
0: Hmm. There's also this, um, I wouldn't call it a movement, but there's this author that I've been reading for the past 15 years. His name is Richard Florida. He wrote The Creative Class about, yeah, around 2000, 2001, if I'm not wrong, in which he basically argued that cities have to start rearranging their office space and their living space to take advantage of this population shift, which is, in a way, manufacturing jobs are on the decline and more automated, intellectual, creative, knowledge-based Jobs are on the rise. So, in order to make a successful city that will grow in the future, you have to make the infrastructure and the buildings and its neighborhoods amenable to the so called creative class, Mm -hmm. knowledge worker, if you will. Cities that don't do that will be left behind. So, then you have the incredible growth of San Francisco, Mm -hmm. Austin, Seattle, Denver, you know, take your pick. But now he's come out with a new book whose name I forget, but I'll link later unless you know it, in which he said, I think the pendulum swung too much because mm-hmm. now we have tremendous inequality where these cities are creating basically yeah. a, almost like a, a Disneyland separate area for these kind of folks at the expense of everybody else and that the gap between what is being built for the creative class and the rest mm-hmm. is just becoming too insurmountable.
1: And there's a
2: tip in yeah. the
1: balance. That's exactly it. That's that that's a movement that I think you're right has gone too far It's great when you build all these, you know, we're building a ton of housing in Seattle. And so people are saying, well, why do we still have this housing crisis? Well, actually, Charles Mudady did a series a while back in The Stranger all about homelessness and housing. And he made some great points about the fact that often when you're building all these new units, even though you might have built 70 new units, the people who used to live in that 30-unit complex you tore down, none of them can afford that. So those people now have nowhere to go, or they're going to have to move out, you know, away, and then how do they get back to that neighborhood to do their job if they're like a, you know, we always say the barista. Where does the barista live? Mm-hmm. When I moved to Seattle, the barista lived in an apartment on Capitol Hill. Well, I don't think they can afford that now, unless they're living on top of each other. But
0: Yeah, and then there's the movements where, I think it's city council, government say in order to make a building, you have to spend or you have to allot X percentage for affordable housing. And I think there's a lot of controversy that the, the so-called affordable housing is either too small or there's some kind of escape clause that the affordable housing doesn't necessarily have to happen in the mm-hmm. building you are making. You could make another project, you know, 20 miles out in the boonies and put your affordable housing there. And that's there. what they do, yep. So the whole, uh, the intermixing of different, cultural factors in one area Mm -hmm. is starting to erode even if you're Mm -hmm. trying to do this affordable housing
1: yep yep they just they buy credits and they they put it somewhere else you're right they Mm -hmm. or or they buy a building somewhere else with that credit yeah it's a problem i think they need i think they are thinking about changing that so that you have to actually build the units there on site or you know closer (laughs) in the neighborhood when Mm -hmm. you do that because what they're getting when they do that often is a trade-off. They can build more what we call FAR, which is basically floor area. It's a ratio based on your size of your lot. And depending on the zoning, you can build taller buildings, which can get you more money. And depending on the height you're allowed to go to, it can be more economical based on the type of construction you can use. So it's all, there's all kinds of games people play in the development world, mm-hmm. but they're basically buying more FAR. And that gets them more profit out of the development, mm-hmm. but they're trading it and building it somewhere else.
0: Hmm. Oh well. So let's just shift the channel on that <laughs> one and go back to you and talk a little bit about what's next. What's in the what's in store in the future for you? Are there any emerging projects that are taking shape, or any fictional ones, for that matter, that you may have in mind that you would love to make actual?
1: Well, I am working. I think I mentioned to you that I'm working on. It's it's been on hold but hopefully it comes back in a, in a real way soon. But I'm working on the Ship Canal Water Quality Project, which is mainly an underground huge tunnel that's going to run all the way along the Ship Canal from Fremont to Ballard. And what most people don't know is it's going to solve a huge issue in Seattle, which is that on big storm days, which happens, I don't know, 16 to 20 times a year, our combined sewer, which means Water and waste uh, can no longer be handled by our system. So they just let it flow out into the sound. And that's not good. Mm -hmm. So this project is really going to fix that in a big way, at least in that area of the city. So um, the piece I have is just the building that sits on top of the pump station in Ballard. And I think it's going to be a really cool project.
0: Mm -hmm. So So I need to understand a little more. It's a tunnel tunnel. Mm-hmm. Un- running parallel, I suppose, to the canal
1: mm-hmm. or
0: under somehow. Yeah. And it's just like a um, metaphor, broadband, more broadband to handle mm-hmm. wastewater be- and funnel it to processing rather than dumping it. Is that right. the thought? You can
1: actually store, Is an, I think it's up to 18 feet in diameter now, which is bigger than a train tunnel. Mm-hmm. You can store water in there. So it can just sit in there when you're having a big, big event and you don't have to get rid of it like because nothing has to flow through it mm-hmm. until after the event is over and then you could the pump station pumps it all out.
0: Hmm. And where's the pump station going to be or is that top secret?
1: No, it's it's public knowledge. It's going to be on the lot. Do you remember where the old Yankee Diner is in Ballard?
0: Mm, I, I don't, but maybe some listeners the
1: do. The <laughs> is still there, I think, but it's this lot that is... A little triangular piece of land between Shilshole, 24th, right right when 24th almost goes up to market there. Mm-hmm. Pacific Fisheries is a neighbor. So it's that site right there. Mm-hmm. I think they just have announced that the Burt Gilman is going to go on that alignment, on Shilshole. Shil-Shol. So there's going to be quite a bit of development in that little area. Mm. And it won't just look like some random train tracks with random cars parked there anymore. Mm-hmm. And hopefully a really cool looking pump station. Right. What's What's fun about it is it doesn't have to be a building with windows or even a normal roof. Right. It's just a shelter for some cranes, essentially. So I'm hoping to do something kind of formal and cool that you wouldn't normally do with a regular building. Great.
0: So look forward to to looking at that. And before we wrap up, I I would like to send a quick thank you to Chris Olson. Mm-hmm. Chris Thanks, has Chris. been a <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Chris has been a previous guest on this podcast when we covered how Seattle is changing and also discussion of his experiences in Mexico City. And he suggested that I have Christine over for a session. I'm so pleased that you said yes. So, Christine, thank you for sharing the details about your projects, your views on why architecture and design are are so vital, and for spending time with us.
1: Thank you. This has been very lovely.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited theplace.io, where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. On that site, you will be able to learn more about Christine Scharr, more about her projects, and scan some links selected to dovetail with some of the themes we covered today. All this will be part of a companion page associated with this episode. And as always, you can subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play. Just take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place.